This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. So today's guest is um, a new friend of mine, Rob Lohman. Rob, welcome. Yeah, thanks a bunch. I'm excited to hang out with you for a little while and just kind of talk about addiction and recovery. Yeah, it's so cool. So Rob and I met actually because as you might have heard, I've been um, moving. We had a third baby and we didn't have enough bedrooms. And so we'd been looking for a, for a different house. And uh, Rob was interested in renting my house for a really cool mission, actually. So, I mean, I want to start with your story, but why don't you just give a little color on your vision for why why we met in the first place? Yeah, definitely. Well, I've been clean for 17 years from drinking and drugging, and I just have a heart for guys that are between 40 and 65 that are coming out of addiction or life transformation that's just really, really challenging. And so I feel like God kind of put on my heart to open up a men's transformational house. And that was the one day that we decided to go from buying a house to renting a place. And I literally looked on, uh, it was um, Zillow.com and your house was like right in this perfect spot. And I clicked on it and you called me right away. And then we were just kind of dreaming together about how to help people. And um, and that's taken a little different course of action now, but it's, it was really cool how we did get to meet through that. Yeah, we got to meet through it. And that's an important thing. And then, I mean, I've always had, you know, vision. I look out my windows up here in Colorado and I'm always like, oh, it's such a beautiful healing spot. And so um, hearing you talk about that vision is, is really cool. So we'll see where it all goes, but that's just so exciting. Yeah, it was fun because even talking like you and Brian and you're like, oh, you guys could put like a ropes course here. You could build one there and just dreaming. But I know, I know there's, um, again, and I hope your house sells soon, um, you know, and a new, a new journey of, the right property will come along and God's in control of that deal. So I'm just kind of going through doors I'm supposed to walk through. And yeah, and we get to meet and get to hang out and I got to hear your story recently too. And that was a lot of fun. So thank you for that. Yeah. I was just on Rob's podcast, which was really fun. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's just so cool because there is, you know, there's a seed kind of planted with all the dreaming and all the ideas and um, where it goes, you know, we'll, we'll watch it all unfold, but it's just so exciting. So Rob, why don't you back us way up and just like start with your story. I'd love to hear, you know, how you fell into it all, how you got out of it all, (laughs) what you learned along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Falling into addiction and being ripped out of addiction. That's kind of my, my thing. But no, I was, grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, You know, had a, most of my family lived back home in Indiana and I was just that kid that was kind of just wired differently than most kids. Is kind of the way I always look at it because the minute I found alcohol, it was just like game on. The light bulbs went off. And the funny thing about it was that so so I was like your kid that knocked on your door and sold you magazines, you know, and after a while they just said, What are you selling now, Rob? And so I was a confident little kid, but I was really insecure. You know, we went to church and all that kind of fun stuff, youth retreats, but I actually went to a little youth event back home in Fort. So we moved from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Fort Worth, Texas when I was nine. And then at age 14, I was hanging out at this little youth event. And one of the guys said, Hey, Loman, you want to go drink some beer out in the alleyway here? And um, I was like, sure, let's go. So it was myself, this guy can't remember his name at all and two very pretty girls. And I was like, you know, this is kind of fun. And I slammed like three beers, like it was nothing. 
and they were nursing their little beers. And from that point, it should have been the, the clarity of maybe I have a problem because I come from a long line of alcoholics. And then it was just kind of from 14 to 29, that was my drinking career. And it seemed like everything I did had a hint of alcohol with it and a hint of, you know, manipulating situations to benefit myself. So in, in those early days, like those first three beers, um, well, first of all, you had three when everybody else had, you know, probably one or two. So the, the physical effects on you were going to be really different, but you felt like, like what, what did it feel like? Cause most people don't really love how it feels the first time. Oh, I can't hear you. Sorry, I hit the mute button. <laughs> um, so I felt like just the insecurities kind of went away because I was always shy around girls and I was also the class clown. So I hid my insecurities by being that guy. You know, I was like the popular kid, but I was really like empty inside, if that kind of makes sense. So I was covering up a lot of my own insecurities. And I don't know from where they came because my parents were awesome parents. You know, my dad was a little distant emotionally like a lot of guys were because I'm 46. So, you know, I think the dads of my generation above us, you know, they were kind of more distant emotionally, but I think guys of my generation now are like really kind of pouring into our kids a lot more. So I'm not really sure from where those came, but, but I just know that when I drank, you know, I felt more confident in who I was and, you know, I was 14 years old. So I'm, you know, still in, what is that? Middle school, getting ready to go to high school and then high school comes along and then you get your license and, I mean, I, I'd, I'd go get drunk during lunch and then go back to school. And I kind of had like principals and teachers in my back pocket because as an addict, you're really good at playing the field and playing everybody. And so that just kind of became what I felt like was an art. And like I was a chameleon and I felt like that was a gift that God had given me, but it was a huge, huge detriment to me. But I just, I just felt good, you know, and the hangovers and all those kind of things, I was, it just kind of was part of the game. But I just, from the beginning, I was just, alcohol was my thing. And I always said I would never, ever do drugs. Like that was my one promise to myself that I would never do drugs. And I held on to that until the first semester of college and went away to, back to Indiana to go to college. And I remember just one of my buddies was like, hey, Loman, you want to get high? And I thought, no, I'm not touching that stuff. Like I like drinking too much. Like just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. And I remember smoking pot and just felt like it felt really cool and I felt good. And then that just led into acid and mushrooms and kind of whatever you put before me. But alcohol has always been, and gambling has always been there as well. So gambling and alcohol have been two things that have kind of been driving forces in my own lack of emotional maturity. And so then, um, so you're in college, you're drinking, you're doing drugs, but are your grades still good? Are you like, oh, where wow. are you at? <laughs> <laughs> if my parents were listening to this, I'd be like, no. So I was a really smart kid. I mean, getting good grades, if I really focused, was just really easy for me, but that wasn't my focus. I went, I went to college actually to become a doctor because my, I love my grandpa. He was a family doctor and that's what I wanted to become. So there was this big vision of becoming a doctor, but there wasn't like a deep conviction, I don't think, because my actions did not show that. And so just being in college, um, I almost got kicked out the first year in college due to poor grades and some um, behavioral issues. 
And, uh, and I remember my parents got the phone call and, and it was a hard moment for me because I was again, really good at getting out of situations. And I remember the one thing that almost got me kicked out was I was, you know, I think I had like three fourths of a bottle of tequila on my birthday and went upstairs to knock on the door of a girl that I liked who said she was sick. And then there was another guy with her and that got me really steamed. And I, I remember going in the stairwell, breaking out a window and then just going into my room, a floor below. And the Dean calls me in and says, um, Hey Rob, we have a, um, I don't think you can go to school here anymore because we have someone that saw you break a window out and you've been drunk. You've been written up this many times. Like, you know, the school is not a good fit for you. And I remember sitting there and I got bold and I just said, if you're going to kick me out of school, I want to know who saw me go into a stairwell on one floor and come out that stairwell on a different floor. Only Superman could be on two floors at one time. And then they dropped all the charges and, and that just began my journey of how do I maintain some sort of academia? Cause I was a fraternity guy and alcohol was just what I did. And, and I quit going to church. Like God was just on the shelf most of my life. And I was just that guy that got arrested and got out of it and was just able to talk my way out of situations. And so they always say when you take potential and alcohol and put it in the same room, potential kicks alcohol's rear end every single time. And that was me because I wanted to be a doctor. I just was more of a drunk than an academic scholar. And uh, I almost. So uh, reverse alcohol kicks potential. Oh yeah. Did I say the other way? Yes. Yeah. Alcohol kicks potentials bottom every single time. Thank you. Yeah. That, that wouldn't have made sense the other way. You know, but graduation day came and almost my entire family was there. Both sets of grandparents, like everybody was there for my graduation. And I wouldn't tell anybody this, but I didn't even know if I was going to graduate. My parents didn't even know this. I'm, I'm on the cusp of my GPA and my major being lower than it needed to be. And I'm freaking out because it's the day before and I still have no clue if I'm walking across the stage or not. And I have probably 23 relatives there. And, and my, my um, biology teacher, my anatomy teacher calls me in and says, Loman, we need to talk. And I thought the bomb, you know, the boom was getting ready to be dropped. And he pulls out my, um, my exam and it's five pages, so five pages of answers. And he flips the first page and he goes, 99. 98, 100, and he's telling me my grades, and he looks at me, he's like, what have you been doing all semester? I'd had the highest grades he's ever had on any exam. And then he said, you're passing by the skin of your teeth. Wow. He's like, but I would suggest you, you really start focusing because you're a smart kid. You're just kind of dumb by, <laughs> in my actions, you know? And, and that woke me up a little bit, but so then I just graduated college and the, the next chapters start to begin. So where did, where did you go after college? So at the end of our senior year, a bunch of my fraternity brothers and mine, and I bought a week long trip out to Lion's Head near Vail, like basically Vail and Lion's Head are right next to each other for people that don't know that area. And I just told myself, I'm going to find a job when I'm out here. And so here I am, 120 grand in college, you know, expenses that my parents paid. I didn't pay for really any of it. You know, I just kind of blew through that. And I, you know, always felt horrible about that. I'm sorry, mom, dad, if you're listening. Um, but I just, I got a job out in Vail and I said, I found a job. And the promise to my parents was I would stay in Colorado for a year and a half. And then I would leave and go back to Texas and get a big boy job. 
And essentially it was a year and a half of just drinking like crazy. I mean, I, I went to college, I was 150 pounds. I left 210. Um, what I didn't tell you was before my senior year of college, I totaled my car in a drunk driving accident, flipped it end over end six times. I mean, completely should not have walked away from that at all. And I walked away with just kind of a hurt shoulder. Again, consequence of my actions, there wasn't much consequence. I was just, you know, I didn't think a lot before I acted. And so I'm out in Thale, Colorado, just being a bouncer at a bar, you know, drinking 10, 15, 20 shots before a shift and just drinking the whole shift. And that's just what we did. So there was no like goodness that came out of there. And after that 18 months was up, I promised my parents I'd move back to Texas. And I did. And I got a job um, working in the banking industry and my career journey after that, again, this was in 1995, I moved back to to Texas. So I was, what, 24 years old at the time. Got a job in, in banking and then real estate. And in the middle of that, I got I went back and got my MBA because I thought that if I had a, a higher degree, that that would get me a better job. But I was still drinking eight nights a week you know, drinking and driving eight nights a week, I always say, because it was every night it was a party. And I just, I don't know, I just wasn't sick and tired of being sick and tired yet. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it was, I was real empty inside, like completely, but, but then I met a girl, <laughs> you know, and she drank worse than I did, but I, but all my friends drank, you know, and so, so we met in 1998 and still living in, in a, in Texas and ended up getting married. And it was a, it was one of those, it was a very short lived marriage. Let's put it that way. Cause I graduated with my MBA. And then my uncle hired me to work for his real estate company back in Indiana. And so we moved to Indiana thinking life would change if we got away from all of our drinking friends. And the problem was there go the both of us in our own dysfunction. And, and it just, it was not a healthy marriage. It was very short lived. Um, for a lot of reasons along the way. And we ended up getting divorced. And then about six months later, I ended up getting clean. And what, what brought that on? Oh, wow. Um, so after I got divorced, um, I just kind of felt like it was, so I was in real estate sales. So I had a six state region I traveled in, you know, so I would make up these trips I would go to up in Northern Michigan and I would just go to the casinos and go visit some of our clients, but I would just go gamble and drink and, come home. And so I was not a very honest and productive employee. But so that, from an outward perspective, like from your, you said your uncle hired you, right? Um, although like, what did it look like from the outside? Did it look as, as disastrous as you're making it sound? No, or no. Were really good at keeping it all together? No, I look good. I was fit. I had a good job. You know, I, I portrayed that I was this happy go lucky guy and everybody called Rob to go out. My bosses liked me. The owner of that company loved me. And so from the outside, I was like the happy-go-lucky, let's go have fun guy. And inside, I was the just, you are a piece of junk guy, and you may as well be dead guy. But I would never let that. And, it, and I could see it building. You know, I would go hang out in these small little bars in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And they had video poker in Indiana, so you could go to the bar down the street and I would sit there for five or six hours and play video poker with these old guys and just form relationships. And I was more comfortable in that environment than I was in the big bar scene, but I went there all the time. But 
you know, I was dating several girls at a time and just making myself look bigger than I was. I was about $65,000 in credit card debt at this time, but I looked good and I felt good and I was fit and I was running half marathons, you know, the night after a big bender. And so you couldn't tell I was that messed up inside because I wasn't letting anybody in, you know, and I was sleeping around and just like doing everything against what I really wanted to be doing. But my heart was changing quite a bit. Like I wanted to quit drinking. I was just getting tired of it. And, and the, the mental illness of drinking was, was getting worse because I would literally be, what you mean by that? Yeah. So there's a lot of depression in everything that comes along with drinking or I wouldn't, people wouldn't be doing as much as they did. So for me, I was very depressed. I hated who I was. I was thinking suicide was a great option, you know, but I wasn't telling anyone. So I was just my own little therapist in my head. Right. And I would be driving down the highway completely not drinking. I, I won't say sober cause I'm sure I was still inebriated from the night before, but I wasn't drinking and it'd be the middle of the day and I'd be driving down the highway up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I would literally see my car veer off and blow up and hit the median. And I would literally see myself dead. And they say that's most people don't see themselves die. They might see an act, but, but I would see myself die. And this was happening more and more. And my blackouts were longer and longer. Um, I would leave the bar after they would close down at one or two. And then I would drive to this casino, which was two and a half, three hours away and gamble as much as whatever I did with my dog in the car and drive back. And I wouldn't even remember those trips half the time. Wow. So I don't know what happened in those blackouts and I never will. And it's, those are scary times that you just have these big blocks of five or six or 10 hours of, I don't know what I did. And when you're that messed up drinking wise, you don't, you're capable of a lot of things. And so here I am, you know, 60 something thousand dollars in debt, you know, feeling like a total schmuck, I guess you could say, and hated who I was. A lot of self-loathing. And it just got to a point where I was hanging out in a bar one night in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Girls everywhere, music was loud, and and it was my zone. That's what I did all the time. And then all of a sudden the bar got completely dead silent. And then I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And I have no clue what just happened, but I looked at my buddy, Sean, and I was just like, dude, I got to go home. You know, I look over at him and I said, I don't know what just happened. I might be done drinking, but I need to go home. And so I drove home, very emotional, you know, not knowing what's going on. And I walk into my little one bedroom apartment in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I have a workout gym in my living room, like every bachelor does, you know, and I just remember walking right past my dog, kind of on autopilot, and put all the plates I had on my barbell in my workout gym, laid down on that bench, and picked up 350 plus pounds. And right as I lifted up off the rack, and I was getting ready to drop it right across my chest and kind of take myself out of the game, as I was lowering that weight, only by the power of God did this thought go into my head. And I looked at my dog, Jake, who was kind of nudging my leg and doing the puppy eyes at me. And my first thought was who's going to feed you tomorrow morning. And then it was just, it had to be the hand of God that just pulled that weight up and put it back on the rack because I couldn't even bench that much weight. 
And the fact that it stopped on the way down is a miracle because I mean, when you can only bench like 225 pounds, you know, it should have just kept going. And it was in that moment that I just knew that God had a different plan for me because I felt the comfort of his arms. Like I literally felt him pick me up off that bench, you know, and just kind of say, I got more for you, buddy. You know, and he walked me into the kitchen and we poured out all the alcohol I had, you know, Glenn Levitt scotch was my deal. Poured that out into the sink. And I mean, I can see all of this happening as I'm telling you this, like just picturing it happening as it's happening at the moment. And I slept in comfort that night for the first time in a couple of decades and woke up the next morning and I didn't know what to do now. I mean, I felt completely, I felt like I do now, like just alive, like just completely different guy. And I meant to call my aunt Carol, who she has now passed away, but she died with about 35 years of sobriety. Um, she was about 20 something years sober at the time. And I remember calling her up and um, thinking I was calling her, but I accidentally called my mom and dad. And this was the phone call my mom was praying for for years. You know, she had no clue I was this bad off. And I said, mom, dad, I, I can't quit drinking and gambling. I need some help. And that was the first time I authentically from my heart had like called out to reach out for help to anybody cry and not even reached out, cried out for help. And my mom said that I cried for probably the next hour and she just listened to me. You know, and then my aunt came and picked me up and she took me to a recovery meeting and these people are laughing and talking about how great their life was sober. And I'm thinking last night I tried to kill myself and these guys are laughing and having fun. I'm going to choose these guys over what happened last night. I mean, I just dove into recovery counseling, you know, the 12 steps. I, and the crazy thing was, I mean, this is again, miracles of God. I mean, mine was divine intervention to not drink anymore because I could drink up to two bottles of scotch a day. Cause I was in sales and marketing like you were, you know, back in your day, you know, you were in sales and marketing, entertaining clients, have some drinks at breakfast, have some drinks at lunch, play golf. That's just what I did. So for me, it was just sustainability throughout the day. And I went from that to literally having not no detox, no withdrawal. I can honestly say I've not had one craving to drink or drug since I got clean on June 8th, 2001. And despite all the chaos and recovery, I've never, ever, ever once felt like drinking would solve a single thing. That's amazing. And by the way, happy anniversary. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I did a, I did a post on Facebook while I was camping with my son at the sand dunes in Northern Colorado. And it was just like, Hey, you know, just, you know, I'm sober today and I can remember this trip and my son's here. He's only 10 so that he's never seen me drink, but just doing that. And it's crazy how many people have like shared and watched that video and, and just, and it's awesome because the, my, I'm not ashamed of my story. I mean, there's a lot of shame that can come from my story later, which we'll get into, but, but just the fact that I haven't had a drink or drug and that long when I did it for, you know, for 15 years, just all the time is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Wow. Gosh, that story gives me chills. It's, you know, I, a lot of my work I try to keep everything really rooted in um, rooted in, in science and like, where's, where's the, the proof and the evidence and like, you know, really talk to the intellectual side of the brain 
but you know there's a big part of me that I don't often talk about like on the on the podcast or in other places that you know the the spiritual mystery of the world you know the divinity of like just the fact that I can't look around and think that we weren't you know amazingly and beautifully and profoundly created and to talk about it's funny because so much of my work is so much about the proof and the facts and the science, but then so much of my heart, like in living my own life is just walking around and just awe and wonder of like, what is this mystery? What is this magic, you know? And what is this? And just hearing your story is like to, to see such clear intervention. Um, it's really, really cool. Thank you for sharing that. It's amazing. So yes. Yeah, so then what happened next? <laughs> Well, even though those two addictions were rooted out of my life, there's always other things to work on, you know, and one thing I just never really pay attention to, I've always had a gambling addiction from, you know, high school, you know, until recently, just kind of, it's always been there, you know, and so there's that risk taking that, I mean, like I'm an entrepreneur at heart, so there's risk taking there. And then but there's also just the, the thrill of something, you know, and so that always kind of stuck around throughout my life. And when I got clean, I wasn't married and didn't have kids, you know? So as life continued to go on, you know, I got out of um, the whole real estate world and I ended up moving out from Indiana actually to North Carolina. And the cool thing about recovery is it's, it's everywhere. Whether people love the 12 steps or they go to church or they just love spiritual books or whatever it is, you can find it anywhere you go. And so there was a real estate company hiring people out in, uh, that I used to work for, and they were out in, Cal in uh, North Carolina. So I flew out there just to go interview and just went to go look around. And I went to an AA meeting one night, and it was probably 250 people at this huge speaker meeting. And they always say, is anyone traveling or new? And I raised my hand. I said, my name's Rob. I'm thinking about moving here. And I literally had a stack of business cards like an inch and a half thick of people says, Hey, if you need a job, if you need this, I was like, I'm going to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I did, you know, I, I went out there and, and I wasn't running from anything. Cause I've always, I've learned now that I need to have wiser men in my life than myself sponsors or guys that go to church or whatever. And so I'd say, Hey, I want to go to California or North Carolina. Here's why. I'm like, sounds like you're not running anything. So I went out there and just started my life as a carpenter because I needed a job. So a buddy of mine gave me a job like laying carpet and never did that before, but it was, it was a community and community is so important to me in recovery. You know, I was in community. We were playing softball together, having coffee all the time together. You know, I had to learn how to do everything sober. Now I'd learn how to play golf and throw darts and date, you know, read a book, like all this stuff. And it was fascinating. So I'm tied in this great community then I became an eighth grade algebra teacher because in North Carolina, you can actually teach without a license for a year, as long as you're getting your license in that year. And because I had my MBA and all this stuff, they're like, yeah, great. So I started teaching eighth grade algebra. Never did that before. Started coaching the girls softball team because they needed a coach. Never did that before, but I would ask for advice, you know, and I was training for a marathon in Rome and with team diabetes. And so I raised like $3,500 and went to Rome to run a marathon in early recovery. And I'm a guy that used to take your money without your permission. You know, I used to joke about that in early recovery because like that's called thievery, you know, and 
just all the stuff I would just take. And now people are sending me money to go do cool things like this. And then, I mean, the progression of my career has just been an interesting one. Um, I then became a college career counselor a little while after that, and then left that great job to work on what became my first book I published called the momentum journey. And it was, a uh, I feel like I was being called to inspire our youth to explore their life options, you know, and now that I'm sober, I can do anything. I can go anywhere. And it was cool. So I ended up buying an RV that eventually broke down, but I made a documentary about these people's stories and why they love what they do and wrote a book about it and was speaking at colleges for a while. And, and I'm a dreamer. So I'm speaking at schools. I love to speak in front of people, not for my own good, but just to share stories and let people learn from other experiences along with my own. And then I ended up in Colorado in 2004 due to the RV breaking down. And because it all happened, I just started interviewing people in the Vail Valley and I was on like the TV and doing cool stuff and out speaking and having a great time. And then I go to a youth event in 2006 over here in Denver with our youth group. And at the time, my story is just so weird. Like I can't imagine having like one job my whole life and like, you know, just going this linear path is I'm a roller coaster thing. There's so much in all this, but I was working on a big three day Christian music festival that I felt like God put on my heart to do. And I'm not a musician. I've never organized a big event at all. It was a small career fair at a college once, but I feel like God was calling me to do this. So I start sharing the vision with all these people. And then all these volunteers are coming behind the vision and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And then I meet my wife who works with Caleb radio. Well, she wasn't my wife yet. So I, there's a booth at this youth event. And there's a couple of girls working the booth. And I was joking with a friend of mine that said, Hey, maybe I'll find a pretty youth pastor or youth leader here that I could marry or whatever and find a great girl joking. But then I get done sharing my vision with Jen who worked for Kayla radio. And we just start talking about the fact we love to run marathons and we want to write books and own a coffee shop and we love board games. And I walk away from this little encounter thinking, I think I just met my future wife. And her friend says, Jen, I think you just met your future husband. And six months later, we ended up getting married. And um, it was just a crazy journey that we've been on since then. And, but yeah, it's, I just keep walking through doors and kind of go not to the next thing, but just what can I do now to inspire people? Cause I love to inspire people cause I've been inspired by many others too. Um, but then the, the marital journey begins because in early sobriety, like I told you, I wasn't married and did not have kids. I'm sure with clients you work with, they can start their journey here, but then big life events happen and it brings other stuff up. I don't know if you see that with people that you talk to a lot, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. And not just stuff like undealt with stuff. So here I am now, so I'm working on the music festival and I wasn't really making much money. It was just a big vision, you know, and a big dream. And, but all these things were coming behind it and partnerships were happening and it was exciting. It was like, God's doing amazing things. We had like John Waller and big daddy weave and all these really cool bands, but about a hundred days before the festival was supposed to happen, we had just a couple hundred bucks left in the checking account. And it was one of those things of just saying, we got to, rally the troops or pull the plug. And in the next hundred days we raised like 
$250,000 of in-kind donations and all this crazy stuff. And this big festival happened and lives were changed. And, and it was a cool thing called the God Rally Project. But the whole, the whole theme, if you'll see in my deal, is that I just want to help people be better and realize they are better than they think they are. And they can do bigger things in their life. And so, so we're going to fast forward to 2000, um, 2011. So I had had an insurance business for about two and a half years. I finally got like a big boy job, you know, software sales I was working in, they closed their division down. And then in um, 2008, I ended up getting this nice sales job uh, with farmer's insurance. I started my own insurance company and I was that go-getter kid, that go-getter guy that just ran, ran, ran really, really hard. And I now have, um, two kids, you know, so I'm now married with two kids, but I never had ever really dealt with an early recovery in my insecurities as being a dad and a, and a husband that could provide. And that started coming out sideways and I quit going to AA meetings because I needed to close another deal to pay rent or pay the mortgage or whatever. So I needed another deal. And so I just quit plugging into Bible studies and church and the good stuff. I quit plugging into my community and I just became this isolated guy trying to provide and do what I thought was the right thing, you know, and I ended up losing my agency in 2011 just due to missing some production numbers, you know, as person has been sales, it's like you miss your numbers, there's penalties, you miss them enough and there's more penalties and there are, are a million details in the middle of all this too, but I lost my agency in November of 2011. My wife quit her job of seven years with Caleb radio in December of 2011. And she had given them a four month notice because we were both spent. Like I was living on energy drinks and no sleep. Jen was living on no sleep and just stress. Our adrenals were shot. We were just kind of like that passing in the night couple of like, Here's the baton. I got to go to this meeting. You watch the kids today and just weren't sleeping. We were both complete wrecks and I'd lost my agency. So now I'm a complete loser in my mind. You know, I'm a horrible dad cause I can't provide. I'm not loving my wife. Well, so I just had a lot of self-loathing going on. And then uh, February, 2012 comes along and I'm sitting in my living room you know, up late one night, it was after Valentine's day. And I'm, I'm a late owl. My like brain turns on when everyone goes to sleep, <laughs> you know, it's like kids are in bed. And so I was up looking for a job and working on a side business. And as I looked up in our, you know, living room, we were in a townhouse community and our townhouse, like it was, everything was in disarray because we we're getting, we we're in the middle of remodeling a kitchen due to something that happened before. And I'm looking around and there's just stuff everywhere. And at the time I had no clue that I had like OCD issues with stuff being out of order because I was just in survival mode. And now I realize I have a big problem with stuff being cluttered. I'm better at it now, but then I just didn't. And so I got up and I started organizing the living room. And then the next thing I know I'm staring at my covered patio and it's on fire. And I had grabbed a box of matches in between getting off the couch and organizing this and kind of like a mental blackout. And then I'm out on my patio 
and I'd set some boxes on fire in our covered patio. And before I could do anything at all, I mean, it was already grown too big. I couldn't stop it at all. So I had to, I mean, I closed the sliding glass door, ran upstairs to get my wife out of bed. She rips my daughter out of her crib and I rip my son out of his bed and we run downstairs and the fire is still outside. So it's not in the house yet. And I'm beating on my neighbor's doors, trying to wake them up and just screaming, like, get up, like trying to save people. So nobody, you know, I was just in like complete rescue mode. And then when my wife had the kids, cause it was winter time, got them all dressed, you know, in their boots. And we went outside right when we shut that glass door or the front door, the entire covered patio exploded like a bomb went off. And it was almost like God was holding his hand there and saying, would you please get out of the house now? And then right when we went out, the backdraft caught, I guess is what the fire investigator said. And, and the whole thing just blew up. And I'm sitting there in my own ad, ad, mind of addiction, right? Cause I'm not drinking or drugging. Right. But I still have this mindset that is like an addict. Like, how am I going to get out of this one? Like, this is not something I can get out of. And we walked around the corner of our townhouse and the flames were 30, 40 feet high because it had melted the, the, um, it's kind of one of those things you tell your story so much and it kind of takes away the emotional piece of it sometimes, you know, but I'm looking around and there's fire trucks and cop cars everywhere. And I'm just like, what have I done? You know, I'm looking at my kids and my wife and, like I was screwed up. Like I'm going to prison. Like I am going away. And so I had to try to figure out how to, how to cover this up so I could figure out what I was going to do to protect them, you know, and long story short, I ended up confessing to what I did. I mean, they thought it was me from the get go because we were, you know, we were stressed. It was just a lot of things, you know, lost a business and just things did not look good. And my wife thought I had done it just be not because that's my that's what I do but just because I was so at the end of our rope and so desperate and so lost and so for a couple weeks I lied to her and then just had to confess to her you know and she just grabbed me and hugged me and said we'll figure this out Um, there's a lot of healing that still is going on with us you know years later Um, but I confessed to what I did in June of 2000 um 12 and this there's a lot of weird details and all this but i didn't get arrested till six months later with 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors and that ended up in july of 2013 i pled down to two cases of arson and the judge we had so much support from our community it was just amazing just knowing that wasn't really me but that was a guy that snapped and now I get emotional pressure. I never got that before. And the judge sentenced me to 13 years in prison in 2013 and ended up suspending an eight year sentence and sent me to the department of corrections in Colorado for five years. And at the time I was the only guy I knew that had ever been to prison. That's not my normal circle of influence. So we had to learn how to like navigate excuse me, we had to learn how to navigate the whole legal system, which we knew nothing about. And it was in that time away that it was 10 and a half months that I was locked up. But it was in that time that I was away that I was able to really secure who I was. 
and get back to the roots of who is Rob Loman? You know, who is God? What is, why have I been a Christian my entire life? You know, I'm just the surface bogus hypocritical Christian guy, you know, but I had all the time in the world now and thank goodness I got sent to a minimum security prison. There were no fences, nothing, just a big dirt path around it. If someone escaped, they could see the footprints, you know, but I decided when I confessed to my crime a couple months after I committed it, that it was God's show at that time. And he has done so many miracles along the way that the, that the legal system said could not be done. He's done. And I can only attribute it to him because my attorney and DAs, they're like jaws are on the ground. Like, how did that even happen? And not egotistically, but I'm like, I serve God. I don't serve the legal system. You know, he'll do whatever he's going to do. And I'm, I have to be okay with that. But while I'm on my little sabbatical from life, right. In Delta, Colorado, my wife's back here having to be mom and dad, disciplinarian, nurturer, you know, trying to figure out homework and sports. And so she's on this own little island to figure out who's the idiot that she married and who is he really and what do I do with him? And it was through that process that she just had people pulling her from left to right. You should divorce him. You're a Christian. You have to stay with him and all these things. And she just said, you know, God, what do you want me to do? And he just said, you know, the guy that set that fire is not my child. That's one that got way off the beaten path. And so she chose to stay with me, you know, and um, again, we have a lot to continue to work through still. Um, but I only saw my kids six days of those 10 and a half months and, um, and my wife, you know, and I mean, but the community back here in the Denver area just surrounded my family. And they surrounded me in prison. They send me books and letters and cards. And, and so for me, it was a huge time of reflection. And, and I knew, and that now, now I know who I am. I know what my triggers are. You know, I know what, when things are going well in my life and they're not going, like I'm real in tune and self-aware of Rob now. Before I was just this ship in a raging sea that had no clue where he was going. Uh, but when I was locked up, I read this book by Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker. And in that book, he talks about quit praying for things from the Lord that he's already promised you and praise him for them. And so I started doing that. I, he promised me that I would get into the halfway house the first round, which normally no one gets into halfway houses with arson charges because of insurance, you know. But I, I, I knew in my gut, he promised me two things, that he would, I would get the halfway house the first round and that he healed my marriage already. You know, And I hold on to that because there's a lot of times Jen and I just, I'm not doing well or whatever. And we just, we argue like most married couples, you know, but, but I believe he's healed my marriage. And I know he'll heal the relationship with my kids when they're old enough to really understand what's, what happened to dad. But I got it in the halfway house at 10 and a half months of a five-year sentence. And, um, and it was a complete miracle. Even the director of the halfway house said, we don't let arsonists in this place, but because you have a stack of letters from pastors in your community, you have a lot to lose. So we're going to take a risk. And I was like their model child, you know, it was like, I don't do anything I'm not supposed to do. And so I lived there for 11 months, rode, my bike everywhere. Cause I couldn't drive, took the bus. 
I lost all my liberties to see my family until a period of time, you know, and um, so you had to earn all these freedoms back. And uh, the reason I do what I do now <laughs> in working with addicts and felons is because honestly, I couldn't get a good sales job because of my felonies. And I don't know if people realize that, but if you have a felony on your record, it's really hard. It's, it's an obstacle, but it's not, I can't get one. It just makes it harder to get a good sales job to what I was doing before. And so after too many rejections, I heard about becoming an interventionist and a recovery coach and getting trained and certified. And I ran through those doors and then just officially launched my business um, December, 2015, after I got trained and I've just been out in society and the world, just getting my name out there. And now I do a lot of interventions, a lot of recovery coaching. Um, I have this, you know, beyond the bars radio podcast and I want to open this house. And so I just continue to pray that as doors continue to open, I don't stand in the hallway too long for the next one. And I sit there and pray that, you know, people will come behind the house. I want to open up and get behind it and, and help that get on the traction. Cause that's what I really want to do. That's what I really feel called to do is love on men that are struggling. And in that hole that I was in for way too long. Wow. Wow. Gosh, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> um, you probably get asked this and, and you might've covered it, but I mean, in that moment when you said the box is on fire, do you have any recollection of intention? No, I, w I wish I could honestly say it was, I did it for this exact reason. Mm -hmm. And as you, as you and I have talked before, it's like understanding, I wish I would have understood so much of this back then of the subconscious and how it drives us so hard and fast sometimes that I don't know what was back there, but I know it wasn't to hurt people, you know, because yeah. I don't do that. I love my wife and my kids, you know, and it was literally just me just kind of saying, I don't know, was it a suicide attempt? Was it a, what, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a, a clear cut answer that says this is what it was, but I do know a million factors that were not in place in my life at that time that if they were, none of this ever would have happened. And so I pay attention to that now in my own life where, you know, I also wait tables like part-time just to bridge the financial gap, you know, and I'm a hard worker you know, and I work hard and, but I know, you know, my pride is completely leveled. <laughs> you know, I just want to walk humbly and I know I can be stubborn at times, but that's why I have, you know, friends like Jeff and John and Todd and these guys will say, Loman, let's do a reality check here real quick. And so with the rock transformational house that I want to open, I'm so patient with that and just letting God kind of run the show that normally like back when I did my first book and documentary, I think I was more driving that train than he was, but now I just got to pull the reins off and say, look, you, you know, what's better for me than I do. Um, I really feel like that's where he's calling me to go. And I hope along the way, you know, I run into some people that say, Hey, I don't want to physically do that, but I have a heart for people in recovery and addicts or even just someone on a nervous breakdown path. And I want to, donate a ton of money to you to help you out <laughs> to get this off the ground, you know, or we have a house we want, we let you use for a couple of years just to, to donate the house or whatever it looks like, you know, I don't know, but it's going to be a lot cooler than what I think it is. And, and I just know there's people out there that want to help that don't know how to, but have the resources to help people. 
you know, and if people are listening, they want to have that conversation. I'd love to do it, but you know, people have a, a you know, the interventions I'm working on now is for a 15 year old kid to a 72 year old man, you know, all the way in between there. So um, there's a lot of people that need help and a lot of more advocates that need to be out there. And uh, there's another interesting part to my story on restitution and stuff that I can get into if we have time, but, um, but yeah, so I'm just kind of being an advocate out there trying to help people and, you know, leaving my legacy for my kids along the way. That's so beautiful. It's so cool. Um, so, well, first of all, where can people, you know, podcast beyond the bars, which is just a genius name, by the way, considering oh, all the dynamics. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then where else can people find you? Um, the be- So I have a centralized website called the addiction recovery hub.com. So the addiction recovery hub.com. And there's all the information on there from interventions and coaching to the podcast, to the house. And that's kind of the best place for people to learn more about myself. I've got some cool new videos I'm putting together that a friend of mine green screened me with that I now get to um, work on getting out there to everybody. But um, yeah, I'm just here to be of service and, along the way, you know, make a, make a living at it. So. That's awesome. That's so cool. And then um, I always ask this question, like, what if you, you know, could go back in time, first of all, the fact that you, you had six months before you were arrested and you knew you were going to be arrested and you are, I'm assuming that your stress in your life had to have gotten worse because now you don't have a house. Right. And all your stuff has been burned up and everybody's looking at you funny. So through this fact, you know, like so many times like, oh, well, <clears throat> people are trying so hard and then something stressful comes up. And yeah, some of the things are really stressful. Some of them are like death or divorce. And then some of the things are like my mother-in-law, you know, and they're stressful certainly, but they're not necessarily and the fact that you in this moment did not go back to drinking or using drugs is like really cool. So <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge that because that's just huge. And, and it just shows that like, if you really decide it's not an option, like without never an option, doesn't matter what circumstance, it's not an option. Um, you know, I don't think the strength that Rob had is like, necessary like it, it's not unique like anybody can have that strength you know once you make that just firm 100 percent decision which is so cool yeah, um, it's, it's interesting though because through that you, you were saying the six months before i got arrested from the day i really confessed and i committed like it was there was some stress but honestly i just i mean i was just trusting god with all the details i mean there was a lot of weird peace that was happening too because jen and i didn't know what to do but it was like, we were just trusting that God did. And so there was this weird piece that was happening when we didn't know when I was going to get arrested. But because my wife was listed as a victim, she got a letter that said there's a case that's been officially filed, which is what my attorney told me, that you'll get a letter probably before they arrest you because they have to make a case. And so we were just kind of living life in a weird, kind of like that weird eerie sound of just kind of like, crickets or whatever, but, but there was a tremendous amount of peace I had from the day I literally turned it all over to even still today. And just the only way I got through that was like his strength, 
completely because there's no way I could have done it. If I don't, I don't know how people go through life in these stressful times without having a very strong faith because my faith can never be taken from me. You know, and that's how I got through all this. And that's how my wife's gotten through it. And, and it's been a really weird journey of look at all these darts being thrown at you, but trusting that God's absorbing the darts, you know, even with my restitution, I mean, I have a huge restitution that I owe. And the state of Colorado has a 12% interest rate on all restitution. So when you look at it, I mean, I'm upside down every single month on the amount I pay towards my restitution to how much interest is being added onto it. So I'm working with some senators and house reps now. And if anyone knows any other ones, it'd be great to help change that because it literally is a, a, new, a financial prison that I could be under until I die. Still trying to figure that piece out right now with uh, wow, that's crazy. some advocacy work, but I'm not going to let that prison mess with me because I know God's got that handled too. So I just pay my monthly amount and, and I would love to pay it all off to write my errors, but unfortunately I'm not making a quarter million dollars yet a year, <laughs> you know, so I do what I can do, but the details are out of my control. I think it's really interesting because so many people think that, um, you know, faith or church or whatever is kind of like putting your head in the sand, right? It's kind of like saying, okay, well, I'm just going to say that there's this heaven and we're all going there someday and there's, um, everything's all good. And I think that's really the opposite of what Jesus said. You know, I think Jesus said that, hey, guess what? Suffering is the way, you know, walk with me and I'm not, I'm not telling you you're not going to suffer. In fact, I'm telling you, <laughs> that it's pretty much guaranteed. And if you follow me, that means following me too. Through the worst suffering, you know, through the most amount of sacrifice. And, um, and that's what I'm going to ask of you every single step along the way. And guess what? I'm never, ever going to tell you it's going to be easy. And I'm never, ever going to tell you that. But I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I'll be with you the whole way and that I'm bigger than you and stronger than you. And there's something that I can give you that no living human and no substance and nothing in a bottle and nothing else can ever give. And I think it's such a thing that we get so confused about because people think, well, why do you need a faith, you know, just to put on the blinders and pretend everything's okay. And no, it's actually, it's actually the opposite of that. It's to realize that in our world, nothing's really okay. There's a lot of fucked up shit is yeah. the truth yeah but that you know we're not alone in it all yeah there's there's a huge piece in that and you know if i'm wrong in the end then at least i had that with me while i was here you know what i mean like but but i believe it so much and fortunately i had the time to really pour in to believe it you know now when you're busy out here with kids and job and running around and stuff you know i read 42 books in 10 and a half months when i was locked up i studied a lot I don't have as much of that time now, but have the basic beliefs and the foundations to, to trust that process. So when crazy things come my way, and I talk to a lot of people who are going through some ugly, disgusting stuff where it's a good reason to just say, you know, God, forget you, like forget you, you know, but when I see people that are in that and they realize that that's not the direction they want to go, it's so amazing to watch them go through that. But 
no, there's a lot of peace in that too. And, and I'm just going to keep holding on to that. And, and, uh, you know, my kids love the Lord and they're awesome kids. And, um, I'm just going to, that's my driving force. So wherever all this goes and things go, it could look totally different in the end and that's fine. Um, I'm not in control of that, but I can't sit on my couch and just wait for stuff to happen. I have to get out there and I have to move and I have to talk to people and I got to get in, get, you know, in the, in all the pieces are going and I can't just surround back. Like, all right, God, let's have it all happen. I'm like, no, I'm going to, you know, shake some trees and make some noise and have some fun. Yeah. It's like we talked about when I was on your podcast, the idea of, you know, I've always really tried to live my life of getting, getting into the boat and getting the boat out on the water and then trusting the wind rather than, waiting for the right time to get in the boat. Amen to that. That's too. So we're, we're in the boat. We may be on the same pond, maybe not, but we'll, we'll, as they say, our paths meet and then we might be on a different river, but it's like they meet again and, and you're pretty awesome for what you're doing. So I, I've had a lot of fun hanging out with you. So thanks for having me on today for sure. Yeah, no, it's been so great, Rob. Thank you so much. It's really an honor. All right. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.